So we're about um, the sixth week into our sermon series on the book of Philippians. So we're past the halfway point. This is going to take us right up to Advent. And if you've missed any of the sermons and you want to catch up, then check our website out, ccc.billerica.org. ccbillerica.org. And if you go there, there's a sermons tab, and I'll have all the latest sermons if you need to catch up. When I was... uh, when I was in school and I was a high school student, I was a pretty average student. You know, on general, I was getting a lot of B's and C's, except for music. I always got that A in music. That was really the only A that mattered to me. There was a couple of subjects I really wished I was good at that I found genuinely interesting, physics and geography. I would actually spend quite a lot of time trying to study these but I was absolutely useless at them. And despite all my hard work, I would still only get maybe a C or a B. But by far, my worst subject was maths. Just could not get a grip on maths. And yes, I say maths with an S on the end, because it's an abbreviation of mathematics. Don't you love a British pastor, huh? Not only do I give you all these pearls of wisdom from Scripture, but I I can correct your English too. (laughs) But I was horrible at maths. I just, I, I, you know, um, I could never get a good grade. And part of the problem was that I was a bit of a bit of a class clown, you know, which I'm sure shocks you. But I have two math teachers I remember. One was called Miss Popham, and I spent most of the class trying to get laughs out of the class by calling her Miss Popham. See, it still works. And our other, the other teacher I remember was Mr. Murray. And Mr. Murray, he had this little, little purple pimple on his forehead. And so kids, we very kindly nicknamed him Ink Spot. But Mr. Murray would, uh, he had a pet name for me, and that was Buffoon. And he would quite often say, Mr. Snape, you are a buffoon. Imagine if he said that today. But back then it was okay. And he said that because I was always goofing around. And he was very prophetic because he said to me, don't come crying to me when you get a D in the summer. And he was quite right, I got a D. But I didn't come crying to him. But I was a pretty average student. But then there were other kids who were exceptional students. There were other kids who were obsessed with getting straight A's. That was their whole purpose in life, to get straight A's. And should they ever get an A minus, life would be over as we know it. We call them overachievers, right? Maybe you're an overachiever. Perhaps you're somebody who has to get straight A's. But if you're not one, you probably know at least a couple, right? You probably went to school with them. Perhaps you work with overachievers, right? And in a sense, that's what Paul is talking about a little bit with this scripture this morning. Okay, Paul was the classic overachiever. And so as we look at that that, scripture this morning, I want you to sort of keep that in the back of your head as we, we dive into this passage. Um, it's a beautiful passage. You know, Philippians is so rich 
Um, I feel like we could spend a year in Philippines, but we won't. Be the sigh of relief. But Paul begins, you know, he says, he begins by saying rejoice. Rejoice. And that's very interesting because think about it. Here's Paul. Where's Paul writing from? Remember, he's in prison. And not only is he in prison, but he doesn't know if he's going to come out of prison alive. Every day he's in prison, he could get the news that he's going to be executed. That this is it. And yet, he still has the presence of mind and the peace to say, rejoice. It's one of the themes in Philippians, isn't it? This sense of, of joy. But Paul, he quickly, he quickly changes his tune, doesn't he? When we get to verse 2, and he uses some very strong language here. Um, he said, I love the way Alberta said it. You know, watch out for those dogs. It's very nice to do. He calls them dogs, and then he says, those men who do evil, or those evildoers, and those, those mutilators of the flesh. That is some pretty strong language there from Paul. So what's Paul talking about there? Well, he's, he's referring to a group of people known as the Judaizers. They also call themselves the circumcision. And this was basically, this was a group <clears throat> of Christian, of Jewish Christian converts who'd come to Christianity, believed in Jesus, but they were also preaching and teaching people that not only did you have to believe in Jesus, but you still needed to adhere to the law of Moses and you still needed to be circumcised to truly be saved. So you can see why Paul's using some strong language here. Um, one of the ways I like to read and process scripture is I like to imagine scenarios in my head as I'm reading the scripture. And, and quite often they're not, uh, they're more sort of my goofy imagination processing the information to help me process through what does this mean. And unfortunately for you, as, as your pastor, you get to hear these goofy imaginations I have. <clears throat> so I kind of imagine this, this group called, calling themselves the circumcision. <clears throat> I imagined them kind of doing outreach by going door to door, you know, a bit like, say, the Jehovah Witnesses do, and they kind of knock on your door, and I sort of imagine this scenario of a group of the circumcision knocking on somebody's door and saying, good evening, sir, we are, we're part of a group called the circumcision, we are a, a cutting edge group, and while we believe that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, we also believe that it is important that you adhere to the law of Moses and are circumcised to truly be saved. Would you like some more literature on this? No, I'm good, thanks. Are you sure, sir? We have no, I'm fine, thank you. Okay, no need to get snippy. <laughs> but there really was a group going around preaching this. And what they were essentially saying was that Jesus wasn't enough. That what he did on the cross wasn't enough. That essentially you still needed to get straight A's to be fully accepted. And that's why Paul's using such strong language here, because they are distorting the gospel. They put an addendum onto the gospel. Yes, it's Jesus on the cross, but also you need to get straight A's. Because Jesus alone is not enough. You know, there are many forms of distorting the gospel today. 
And legalism is certainly one of them. We, we find legalism, legalism a lot in the church. This idea that you have to stick to this set of rules and you've got to pray for this amount of minutes every day and you've got to read this much of scripture every day. Otherwise, you're not saved. It's a distortion of the gospel. And because you look out for them in today's society because they are many. And they can be wrapped up in a beautiful package that sounds very appealing, but ultimately you only need to ask one question. Are they saying there's something more needed than Jesus and belief in him? Because if they are, your warning flags should go up. So Paul says, no, it's not them, it's we who are the circumcision, because it is we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's very fond of that word, the flesh. And he uses it kind of to, to refer to, you know, the simple nature in us, the things that want to do things that are contrary to God's will, the things that are, are going to go against God's plans for our life. But what he's really saying is he, he's saying it's not about what you do. It's not about how many rules and laws you can adhere to or how many A's you can get. You know, it's funny with, with the grade A, I've noticed now that what has, what has been introduced now is that there's a grade A star, right? Because now A's are not good enough for the overachievers. Now you need A stars, which means you've got, I think it's 98% or higher. Now we've got A stars. But Paul said it's not about that. It's not about you trying to pass this exam. And in case, in case you have any doubts about whether it's about what you do or whether it's about what Jesus does, Paul says, um, he says, let me share my resume with you. And that's what essentially he's doing in verses 4 to 6. He's saying, you want to talk about somebody who's a straight A overachiever? Let me tell you. Let me tell you about myself. And what does he say? He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul is saying, if anybody can claim to be faultless in obeying the law to the book, if anyone is going to be saved through good works, guess what? It's me. Paul saying, I am the poster boy for Judaism. He's saying, look at my report card, straight A's, A stars. You know, he'd probably be described as a fanatic today, right? Somebody obsessed with perfection. Let me tell you something about perfection. One of my college professors said, perfection is the enemy of completion. You're never going to be fully perfect, folks. And it'll stop you achieving so much in life if you believe something has to be perfect before you can move on from it or before you can finish it. But while Paul had the, he had the best education money could buy, right? He really did. And he had the highest of credentials. He came to the realization that these things, they couldn't, they couldn't buy him or earn him salvation. And they couldn't buy him the Father's love. In fact, in verse 7, what does he say? He says, but whatever was to my profit, 
So in other words, all these achievements he'd done in life, which are usually considered to profit, he says, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. This man's in prison. He says, I consider them rubbish or garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So I want to be clear here. I'm not trying to bash people who want to study hard and want to do well in school and their careers and their jobs. Not at all. That is not what I'm trying to say here. But what I'm trying to say is Paul realized that they need to be put in their place. And that compared to Jesus and knowing him, all these things really aren't that important compared to Jesus. What he's really saying in a sense is, all those things are fine. You want to get straight A's? Go for it. Wonderful. You want to be the best in your job? Wonderful. You want to go for promotions? That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But what he's saying is, when that becomes your identity, and that becomes the source of your joy and your contentment, he's saying, ultimately, it's going to fall flat. It's not going to live up to its promises. I was recently watching a documentary on uh, Ronnie Coleman. And if you don't know who Ronnie Coleman is, Ronnie Coleman is by many considered the greatest bodybuilder that we've seen. He was Mr. Olympia, I believe, eight times. And he really, he took the sport to a new level. I mean, this guy is huge. And in in his day, when he was at the top of his game, nobody had seen the size and definition of muscle that Ronnie Coleman had been able to develop. And that this was because of his work ethic. I mean, he would do and lift weights that nobody else would touch. You know, he's squatting 800 pounds. Just an absolute beast. And his documentary is rather sad in some respects because while he's a legend in the sport of bodybuilding, and while nobody has been able to achieve what he has achieved, he's now 53 years old and can barely walk. He needs crutches everywhere he goes, and he literally walks like this, like an old man. He has two, two young daughters, probably made, maybe at age 8 and 10. And it's because the extreme weights that he put on his body have taken their toll on his body. He has um, crippling back problems. He says he is in pain 24 hours a day. The interviewer asked him, you know, how would you describe your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? You know how they ask, you know, 1 to 10. By the way, you know, it's, um, uh, he, he said it's about a 13 or a 14 every day. And I thought of him and I thought, and, you know, as they're showing him around his house, he's, he's got all these trophies and medals and awards and cabinets in his house. And while bodybuilding had given him many things in life, he'd given him a lot of accolades, he'd given him a lot of security, he'd managed to get a house and a car, and he'd made a lot of money from it, he's hobbling around and he's in constant pain, 24 hours a day. And I thought, ultimately, was the cost truly worth it? Did it give you everything you dreamed of? Is this the life you dreamed of at 53? And of course the answer is no. 
Because ultimately, as amazing as his achievements were, he had put his identity and his worth, his worthiness in the wrong bag. You'll only truly find that in Jesus. Here's the clincher, though, I believe, to this verse. What I, passage, what I believe is the epicenter of this passage, and it's verse 9. Paul says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Listen to that again. It's very, very important. Okay? Paul is saying, he's not, He doesn't have a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law. So in other words, I don't, I'm not made righteous by what I do. What does being made righteous mean? It means to be completely exonerated in the eyes of the Lord. You are not guilty. But Paul's saying, it doesn't come through my own action from the law, but it's that which is through faith in Christ. And that is the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So Paul is saying, again, it's not about what you do. It's not about your grades and your report card. It's about what God has done through Jesus, and then our role is to believe, to have faith. So in a sense, what you've got is you've got God, Jesus, believe. God, Jesus, believe. When you come to that place of belief, God doesn't grade you in your paper or your exam on what you've written. He grades it on what Jesus has written for you. It's actually the one time you have permission and it's okay to plagiarize. Do you know that? It's okay to say, Jesus, I need you to take this exam for me. Let Jesus write your paper. In fact, we have to let Jesus take our exam and write our papers if we have any chance of passing that test. Because Jesus is the one who took the impassable exam and passed with flying colours for us. You know, there are 613 laws or commandments in the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the Torah. And despite Paul's claims, because he's using exaggeration when he talks about himself, no one has been able to truly keep all 613 of those laws perfectly. Nobody. In a sense, it was, and that's deliberate, it was God's way of giving us an impossible task. He's like, you want to be holy and righteous by doing your own work? Here's what you've got to do. The Lord knew it was impossible. Because he knew that every time we try to uphold those 613 commands and laws, somewhere the law would find us guilty. Say, ah, 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 you slipped up there. Oh, no, what about that thought you thought earlier? Ah. And of course, that's why he sent Jesus. That's why we needed Jesus. Because God knew there was nobody who could do it other than Jesus, his son. He knew that we had an impossible task before us. He was saying, you can't pass this exam. The exam's rigged against you. Sarah told me once that she had, <clears throat> she had a history teacher in community college, right? 
And the first, first day of the classes, the, the history teacher said to the whole class, nobody will get an A in this class. He was playing hardball with them. But Sarah worked her tail off and she got a B plus. She was the highest grade in that class. But you know, in a sense, that, that teacher, he'd kind of rigged it against the students. He'd already made his mind up, nobody's getting an A here. And in a sense, this exam, this test, was already out of your hands. You were never going to pass it. That was God's role through Jesus, so that Jesus could shine. But he moves on in, in chapter, in verse 10. And this is so powerful, verse 10. We, we, we sang this just a few moments ago. But Paul says, I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. Do you want to know Jesus? I think we all do, right? We're hungry to know Jesus. It's one of the reasons we're here this morning. He says, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This should be the desire of our hearts, to know Jesus. And you know, here's the thing, there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Yeah? There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. One is an intellectual pursuit devoid of the heart, the other is a pursuit of the heart that engages the mind as well. You know, even demons knew about Jesus. And if you're not sure, check out Acts chapter 15, verse 19. The demons, they knew about Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. If you want to know Jesus instead of just knowing about Jesus, you've got to start by believing Jesus is who he said he was. Leonard Ravenhill said the following. He said, one of these days, a simple soul will pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it. Then the rest of us will be embarrassed. We've adopted the convenient theory that the Bible is a book to be explained, whereas first and foremost, it is a book to be believed and then obeyed. The same goes for Jesus. He is to be believed before you can start explaining him. It affects our witness. If you don't know Jesus, you can't hope to share him with other folks and for there to be any ring of authenticity to your faith. If you do not know him, it will fall on empty ears. You can't know Jesus by just reading about him or watching YouTube clips or the History Channel programs about the history of Christianity. All that does is give you a superficial knowledge of Jesus, much like you might have, say, of Gandhi or Abraham Lincoln. You know, recently Sarah and I, we watched a, a documentary on Whitney Houston and her, her amazing life, but her tragic life and her untimely death. And at the end of that documentary... I knew about Whitney Houston, but I didn't know her. 
I knew some stuff about Whitney Houston, but I didn't know her. I didn't know her because I've never met her. I've never spent, spent any time with her. I never had a relationship with her. So how do you get to know Jesus? You do the same things you would do to get to know anybody in real life. You spend time with him. You talk with him. You ask for his help. You pray with him. You complain to him. You laugh with him. You you celebrate with him. You give thanks to him. We think it's so hard sometimes. Well, how do I get to know Jesus? Those are your first steps. When was the last time you actually just sat down with no distractions, no devices, no phones, no iPads, no laptops, and just said, okay, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Try it. You may be shocked by the results. Sure, you'll get distracted and you'll start, your mind will wander, but bring it back. Bring it back. And sooner or later, the Holy Spirit will speak to you and Jesus will speak to you. Jesus' desire is to have relationship with you. Can you believe that? He actually wants to know you. I mean, he does know you. He knows everything about you, but he wants you to come to him so that you may know him. Jesus is saying, you don't have to do something to earn my love. It's not about your grades. You don't have to have this perfect scorecard before I will talk to you. He's actually saying, Come to the fount and drink of the wellspring of life that I have for you. You know, it's building relationship with somebody is harder and harder in today's society, isn't it? Because we, we're led into a false sense of relationship through social media. You know, if you, if you have a Twitter account, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Snapchat... You name it, whatever your poison is, okay? These online communities, what they do is they feed a false sense of relationship and community. Just by reading somebody's posts and their profiles does not mean you truly know this person. I mean, heck, if you looked at my profile picture, you'd think I was 30 pounds lighter than I actually am. But meet me in the flesh, you're like, whoa, okay. Speaking of flesh. (laughs) But you know what I mean? These are false senses of relationship. You need to build relationship with real people. And this is why I commend you all for coming to church this morning, because you know what? That's where real community is found. And it's not as comfortable as sitting in an armchair typing a response to something somebody's written. It's one of the reasons, I know I talk about this a lot, but it's one of the reasons that so many, especially the young, are lonely in life. They have no real relationships anymore. It's all online. It's all fake. You don't have to look into somebody's eyes anymore. You just look into their profile. But you can build relationship with Jesus. But you know what the funny thing is? Despite all that, despite the fact that Jesus wants relationship with each and every one of us, we still try to earn his love, don't we? you feel like there's still something you need to do before God will really accept you. I know I am plagued with that feeling sometimes, even though I know the theology. The human part of me sometimes 
It's like, God, do you really, do you really accept me? Just, I mean, gosh, Lord, you know so much about me. You know everything about me. We still have this sense that we have to earn it. We still believe that our salvation cannot really be secure unless we do something to seal the deal. Right? And I think there's a deeper root at work here, folks. I think there is something deeper at work in that mentality. And here's what I believe it is. I believe that many of us don't fully believe that you are loved just the way you are. Do you believe you are loved and lovable just as you are? Sure, you might imagine that God might be able to love a future version of yourself, right? When you've got it together and you've done enough good deeds, then maybe, maybe God will say, okay, you know what? Now I can love you. But we think, no, I've, I've got too much baggage. I've got too many dark secrets, too many imperfections and shameful thoughts and actions. Perhaps sometimes, do you ever get the feeling sometimes like that, that you disappoint God? Do you ever have those feelings? Well, he must be so disappointed in me right now with what I just did. Let me tell you something. You can't surprise God. Do you realize that? There's nothing you can do that is going to shock God, that's going to make God be like, wow, I did not see that coming. I had no idea they were capable of that. You are such a nice young man. How could you do this? I'm very disappointed in you. No. You can't surprise God with anything you do, whether it be bad stuff or good stuff. You know, you think, oh, God's going to love this. This is going to catch him off guard. He knows it. He knows it, and he knows you. But nonetheless, we ask that question, how could a good and righteous and holy God, how could they love me just the way I am? Well, thankfully, part of the good news, the gospel, is that God does love you. Remember last week the kids recited John 3.16? What does the first part of that verse say? For God so loved the world. That means you. That means me. And here's another thing. He didn't die for you when you were at your best. Yes, he went to the cross for you when we were at our worst. The gospel says that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. He didn't say, okay, now you've done enough good deeds, now you're worth going to the cross for. Okay, I guess I'll do it now, guys. No. Instead, what he said was, you can't pass this exam. You don't stand a chance. Now give me the pen. Give me the pen. Let me do it. Sometimes I find, actually very often, I find people who can say things I'm trying to express far better than I can, who are far more articulate than I can. And I want to play you a short clip of a man named Brennan Manning. He wrote a tremendous book, which I highly recommend, called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And Brennan Manning is a Jesuit priest. 
He was also an alcoholic who ended up on the streets when he was a priest and went through some real trials and sufferings, came through his alcoholism and began preaching and teaching all around the world. And I want you to listen to this clip which talks about how much God loves you. Chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania. And in literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I try to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, <coughs> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image. He wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be. Because you're never going to be as you should be. It's 
powerful message. Unfortunately, we couldn't see the visual because I think the visual really helped with the impact of the message. But do we believe that? That God loves you just the way you are, not as you should be. Because we're a work in progress. We won't be fully as we should be until Jesus consummates everything and returns and makes all things new. But in the meantime, you are loved. And so in conclusion, remember, it's not about your grades. Our whole society works on the premise that if you work hard, you will be rewarded, right? It's part of the American dream. But this is why, actually, it's so hard for some of us to accept the simplicity of the gospel. Because the gospel is so countercultural to those values, because Jesus says, I've done the hard work for you, which is the cross. Now believe it is finished, that it is paid in full, and start living with joy and contentment and happiness. And as we leave this, I don't want you to come away thinking this is a message about hyper-grace. That therefore you can do whatever you want because Jesus has taken care of it. No, remember what Paul said last week in our reading? We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning, he's, he's saying now that you have salvation, you've got to figure out how do you live your life in light of that. It's important to remember that God's love is unconditional. His salvation is not. The Father has always and will always love you regardless of what you do and the choices you make in your life. So remember that. But that, does, that alone doesn't make you righteous and pure in the, in the eyes of God. Just, that, just because God loves you, that doesn't get you the grades you need. You need to know Jesus and believe him. And when you do, get ready to celebrate because Jesus has turned in your report card to the Father. He turned it into your Father. And guess what it reads? Straight A's. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, it's not been left to us. Lord, you didn't leave us to just figure it out on our own and to somehow figure out our own righteousness and holiness. You knew, Lord, that we needed your help, that we were actually helpless without you. And so, Lord, I thank you for, for the gift of the cross. I thank you, Lord, that you took the exam that we couldn't pass. Help us to live in light of that this week. There should be a newfound joy when we really believe that. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know you. Help us to know you more deeper, Jesus. Call us to you. Even when we're restless. Even when we have a thousand things going on in our day. Lord, would you just remind us, hey, I'm here and I want to talk to you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.